The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It's already the middle of May. I, honest to God, have no idea how that happened, but it did. Um, To all of you seniors, you survived the college process. Um, to anyone out there saying, uh, raising their hand, thinking, uh, not so much, I survived, but it didn't turn out the way I'd hoped, um, it might be interesting for you to know that there are spots still available at more than 400 colleges here in the United States. Um, and if you're interested in finding out more, you want to check out the NACAC website. Um, and it's a long web address, so rather than try and read it out to you, what I would say is just Google NACAC College Openings Update, and it should get you what you need. And they keep that updated pretty regularly. So if there are new colleges that want to be added to that list, you'll see them there. If there are colleges who ultimately fill their class, they'll be removed from there. But if anyone finds themselves in that situation, um, check that out. Uh, So we have lots of listener questions today around uh, depositing, which happened just a few weeks ago, and what happens now, Um, and also a lot of stuff coming in regarding summer plans for those of you who are juniors or maybe in earlier grades. Um, So I'm looking forward to answering as many of those as we possibly can, but before we get to all of that, Um, We're going to be talking today about a program that some of you may not be familiar with, and I will tell you that I was actually not familiar with it until just a few weeks ago uh, when I learned about something called the BSDO Combined Program, and I learned about it from my wonderful colleague, Mary Sue Yoon, who also happens to be a former Barnard admissions officer, and she worked with a student who was applying to some of these programs, and she's going to join us today and tell us more. Hi, Mary Sue. Hi, Beth. Um, so, as you you probably recall, a couple weeks ago, you sent an email around to the team saying, hey, for your kids who are interested in BSMD programs, did you know that there is this other option? Because BSMD programs do tend to be incredibly selective. And you told us all about it. I thought it was super interesting. And I thought our listeners would like to hear about it. And that's why um, you've joined us today. So, why don't we start with the very first question that I had and that people are probably wondering about themselves, which is, what is the BSDO program? Right. So, it's, you know, it is a situation where students who um, may be interested in the pre-med track, um, maybe they're interested in accelerated med programs. So, accelerated med programs are combination programs where students would do a bachelor's degree, and then a medical degree back-to-back. And uh, there are some accelerated programs where a student could apply once in their high school years 
and be able to sort of guarantee their way through a seven- or an eight-year program. So the ones that I've worked with a lot of students on um, over the years have been more um, the BSMD programs, which is a medical doctor degree. It's a Mm four-year degree after the four-year bachelor's degree. Um, But then in the last couple of years, I've uh, had a few more students that I've worked with who have really looked more at the BSDO programs. And DO stands for Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine. Um, and so it's an osteopathic medicine doctor as opposed to MD, which is called an allopathic medical doctor. Um, both right. are fully licensed to practice in the United States. Um, the MD degree is, is more popular, probably more like eight or nine out of ten doctors that you'll come across will be allopathic or MD doctors, Um, but the DO programs are actually hugely on an upswing and growing. Um, One statistic I read in preparing for this today said that there's been about a 40% increase in DO applications in the last few years, so that's huge. Um, But the idea of a doctor of osteopathic medicine, it, it is the same training Um, in many ways as an MD degree. It's still a four-year degree that a student has to do after their bachelor's degree. Um, But the idea is that osteopathic medicine is more holistic in its viewpoint. It's looking at the whole person that they're treating um, Mm -hmm. in the process. So it's, it's not just sort of, you know, you go to your doctor and you might have, you know, some sort of sinus infection or something and they immediately prescribe antibiotics and you're sort of sent on your way. But a DO doctor might have more of a philosophy of looking at the whole person, you know, what are the perhaps allergens in your environment? What are the stressors in your environment right now? Has anything major changed um, from a more personal perspective? And are those clues to somehow um, indicators of how stress might be related to health of the patient um, or other pieces around it? So it's a more holistic way of looking. Uh, mm-hmm. at medicine, and so I think it's great, and it's been uh, a really wonderful piece for a lot of the students that I've had that have looked at it. Yeah, and I actually, um, full disclosure, my uncle is uh, a DO and has, you know, everyone calls him Dr. Lebo, and he <laughs> is uh, known as a doctor. I don't think anyone thinks... I really actually don't think anyone thinks about it. He has lots right. of patients yeah. and has been very successful in that. He, um, in, in that way, he's a general practitioner. So for our listeners who are thinking, well, that's all well and good, but it's not an MD, I think, um, as you're saying, people are starting to recognize, and they probably have for a long time, that mm-hmm. this is still a very valuable, um, you know, you're basically a doctor. It's the same mm-hmm. thing yep. um, in all those ways. So how is it, from do you know you know and this is drilling down a little bit more deeply than we than we generally do but do you know if there are key differences in the coursework that students are doing as part of this program or um, is that something that our listeners should probably go on and take a look for themselves? Right. Well, I am okay. not a medical doctor of, of any sort, <laughs> but um, in working with students over the years who have been applying to these programs, I have had to educate myself about the differences. And um, my understanding of some of the differences is that uh, although DO doctors are, are fully licensed doctors and can go into any specialty uh, just like MD doctors, so they could go into cardiology or pulmonary care or anything that an MD doctor would go into as a specialty, um, more tend to stick 
more DO doctors tend to go into stuff like primary care practice or internal medicine or pediatrics or obstetrics or something like that. It tends to be more for folks who are interested in the um, sort of family medicine kind of ideas. It does not mean that they're limited to that. That's just sort of, I think, a trend more that those uh, the folks who are going through a DO program. In terms of the training, um, from my understanding, uh, from is that that there's about 200 more hours of studying osteopathy, which means sort of learning about how um, sort of stress and physical kind of wellness is held in the body. Um, So there is pieces about sort of physical manipulation of the body in terms of um, you know, think, doing things like if you have a sinus infection, is there a sinus massage that you could do that could help drain some of the sinus infection? Again, I'm not a doctor, but, you mm-hmm. know, I think it's dealing with some of those pieces that are um, beyond just prescribing uh, a medication to fix an ailment, but sort of are there ways that can be looked at it in a more holistic way to get at the same symptoms and ailments. Got it. Which would in turn follow, right, that those doctors would end up probably being more interested in general practitioner internal medicine because mm-hmm. they are, have studied the whole body and those are, um, those are um, fields where you're going to be working with the whole body rather right. than just doing brain surgery. Yeah. Um, uh, interesting. So I think here's a big one, and, and the fact that applications are uh, to DO at least are on the upswing may mean mm-hmm. that this this difference is eliminated over time. But but um, you know what are differences that you're seeing in terms of admissions expectations for students applying to these combined programs, or mm-hmm. are you seeing them? Yes, I, I definitely see a difference. Um, in general, a student who is looking at uh, a BSMD program is probably going to be a similar cal- caliber student to what we would see for the most highly selective Ivy League kind of schools. So straight A average, you know, top SAT scores, top SAT subject tests, um, you know, and significant leadership in extracurricular activities as well. So it's that sort of, it's that top top level student that is getting into the BSMD programs. For the BSDO programs, they're still looking at really top candidates, but I think that the bar is just a a slight, slight bit lower where you might be able to have a student who has more like an A-minus average, um, and maybe the test scores are maybe in the 1400s range rather than the 1500s range out of of 1600 on the SAT. Um, So these are still, you know, top kids really taking strong honors courses, um, but they may not be, you know, the top, you know, number one kid in their class, maybe right. in sort of top 10% of their class Got it. and a student. Got it. But, I mean, that is, it is nice to have that option because for the students that are truly, truly dedicated to this idea and ready to embark on their medical career a little bit earlier than the average kid, um, that one, you know, the the high, high, high level of selectivity for BSMD programs has sometimes been a barrier to that. Mm-hmm. So this opens up, you know, another another avenue because, as you say, it's certainly not easy to get in, but you know, we talk about admission to the Ivies and, and that as being, you know, that's just tough. There's just right. a very, yeah. so few spots. And realistically speaking, it's the odds are completely against you. And this kind of widens the odds a little bit, which is exciting. Yeah, it um, is. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and what about um, what about the extracurricular activities? What are things that you see as being kind of particularly valuable in an application to these types of programs? So when a student's applying to accelerated med programs, um, there really is, uh, you know, a process where they're reviewing the application alongside of perhaps students who might already be through their bachelor's degree and are applying to those programs as a traditional medical student. So they really are looking for a level of maturity, I think, that is unusual in a high school student mm-hmm. um, and, and quite advanced. And so some of the ways to kind of demonstrate that maturity and that seriousness of purpose towards a medical profession um, are to explore extracurricular activities um, from a fairly early age in high school um, that are related to this medical interest. So some of the examples of students that I've had that have been successful in this process, um, I've had a student who did, uh, you know, original scientific research where she was doing research on um, stem cells in the brain with uh, a college professor local to her, and, you know, she even got co-author on a couple of his papers that were published. So it wasn't just, you know, cleaning the beakers in the chem lab, but really getting involved in the research. Um, I've also had students do significant work either uh, with a doctor's office or with a hospital, and it's beyond sort of the typical teen volunteer work in the hospital where you're just doing patient transport or maybe, you know, bringing around meals, but where they're doing something um, that's perhaps uh, coordinating a group of volunteers or working in the pharmacy or the labs uh, at the hospital, that kind of work, um, or probably the most common and, and one that I found has been quite successful is I've seen a number of students who get certified to be EMTs, so emergency medical technicians, and, uh, you know, ride on ambulances after about yeah. it, 200, 250 hours of training um, to get certified as an EMT, and then, you know, cont- usually can't get that training until they're about 16. So a lot of students, it might be the summer in between their 11th and 12th grade year. Um, and then in 12th grade, continue that commitment by every Sunday riding, you know, having a regular shift at their local volunteer ambulance corps. Um, and I think that shows an incredible maturity and seriousness of purpose. I couldn't do it, and I'm a lot older. No. <laughs> I could never do it, right. Um, and it, you know, you know they're it, in the It field. also shows, yeah, I mean, it shows that they know what they're getting themselves into, which is a big thing. Yeah. You know, you, you have a lot of students, I, I deal with them, I'm sure you do as well, who are telling me they want to be doctors, but, you know, it's because they really liked bio and chem, and they know that being a doctor is, uh, you know, it's a profession. There's an easy path to get, not an easy path, but you can see what the path is to get there. But then they get to college and they take something like organic chemistry or they start to really think about a lifetime spent in a hospital and they start to say, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Whereas if you've been out there saving lives and yep. had your hands in it, you, you know, and you still want to do it, well, you probably know a lot more that you, you're more committed to it probably at mm-hmm. that point. So, um. So in terms of um, just giving our listeners one last thought about, are there good resources that you found to find out more information about schools that are offering the BSDO program? Uh, yeah. So the, uh, there is an organization called the, the American Osteopathic Association, um, and you can take a look uh, at their website. It's just osteopathic.org. 
Um, and they keep a list of accredited osteopathic medical schools across the country. And they really are located everywhere in the country. Um, there's probably a few in, in most states, one or two in each state, um, that would have it. Now, not every osteopathic medical school will have the option of an early entrance for, you know, that BSDO program, um, but at least that gives you a sense as to where those osteopathic medical schools are and what you might be eventually shooting towards um, for that degree. All right. Awesome. Mary Sue, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Well, and we all learned something new because I learned even more than I learned from our email exchange the other day. So thank you so much um, to our listeners. Your questions, we're getting to them as soon as we come back. So stay right where you are. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Uh, I am joined by my colleague and college finance expert, Shannon Vasconcelos, who is just happens to be a former financial aid officer at Tufts University. Um, and we're answering all of your college admissions and finance questions. So, Shannon, how are you today? I'm great, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm enjoying the fact that the weather is sort of getting nicer. At long um, last. 
I know. At long last, because, you know, it's time to start eating more ice cream again, and I know that that appeals to you, so. It is my top priority, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not warm enough yet, and I wish it would get there, so. I know, and it's deceiving because it's beautiful and sunny out. You think it's going to be, like, summer weather out there, and then you walk out. It's still got a little chill in the air, but yes, we're getting still there. a little chill. We are, we are. That's the, that's the perils of living in New England, but. Exactly. All right. Well, let's jump right in because we do have a lot of questions, as always, um, from our listeners. And why don't we start with one of yours? So um, uh, Matt wonders, um, well, he's asking, my son is starting college in the fall. We don't qualify for any financial aid, but we can't afford to pay out of pocket. How do we get a student loan? Oh, Matt, I wish that you had asked this a little earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so um so he says that they don't qualify for fi- financial aid and I'm unclear if he n- knows that because he applied for financial aid and didn't qualify or he's just assuming that he doesn't qualify for financial aid. Right. Um if he has not completed a FAFSA yet, that is step number 1. Um there are some non-need-based student loans um that his son can borrow. Um, it's called the Unsubsidized Direct Loan Program. Um, and his son can borrow $5,500 for a freshman year from that particular loan program. So if he has not filled out the FAFSA yet, do that. That's the first step, and that will get that ball rolling to get that unsubsidized loan, which is basically guaranteed to every student. Um, so that's step one. Um, if he needs to borrow more than that, again, the Stafford loan is only $5,500 for a freshman year. Um, there are a few different options. There's another government loan called the PLUS loan that parents can borrow. Um, some states offer state loans. Most of the kind of big private banks. Some credit unions offer um, some student loans that generally parents need to co-sign with their student on. There's some options out there. Um, He may want to check in with the financial aid office at the school. Sometimes they have um, like a lender list of of loan, um, student loan lenders that they've worked with in the past so he can compare his options. Um, So I would start with the FAFSA if he hasn't done that yet. Talk to the financial aid office at the school. Talk to any banks he works with now to see what kind of loans they offer. Um, Kind of to step back a bit, kind of the larger question, they don't qualify for aid, but they can't afford to pay out of pocket. Uh, And so he's looking for a loan to cover this. You know, if you can't afford to pay out of pocket, can you afford to pay back the loans? That's kind of the larger question, I think, that's sort of embedded mm-hmm. here. Um, that mm-hmm. Matt needs to make sure that he um, he knows that the answer to that question is yet, and it very well could be. You know, he might not be able to pay the four years of college over four years, but stretching it out with a loan over 10 years, he certainly might be able to afford that. Um, but one resource that I would recommend is one of our colleagues, uh, Kathy Ruby, who's been a guest on, on this show many times, so folks listening might have heard her before. She wrote a great blog recently. Um, I think the title of it is How Much is Too Much to Borrow for College? Yes. Um, that has some great resources and kind of guidelines and calculators to really help folks um, zero in on kind of what an appropriate amount to borrow might be, how much they can truly afford. Um, so I'd recommend that Matt take a look at that blog post as well. Um, our blog website is blog.getintocollege.com, so I would definitely recommend he check that out. All right. Awesome. Um, some good information there. All right. You have one for yeah. me. 
I sure do. Um, Greta sent in a question. She says, my daughter deposited at her second choice school, but she's still hoping to get off the wait list at her top choice. How soon will we hear from them? Uh, good question, and one that a lot of people who are waiting on wait lists are, are um are asking right now. I can say, first of all, that great job of depositing at a school. Um, that's always important. And I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that it's your daughter's second choice because, you know, the likelihood is pretty high that that's probably where she's going to wind up going. Um, in terms of wait list, some schools at this point already know because May 1 was the common reply date and now there's been enough time. So that was about 11 days ago or 10 days ago. Now the schools should have enough time. The dust has settled to see, okay, have we filled our class or do we still have holes to fill? At some schools, they may have a lot of holes to fill. So they may have, they may have had a lot of wait list movement at other schools, um, and typically when you're talking about the more selective and the most selective schools, their returns are ten- generally pretty strong. And so when there's waitlist activity, it, it usually isn't, you know, we're not really talking about huge numbers here. You know, a year in which you take 50 kids off the waitlist is a big year for a waitlist movement at an Ivy, for example. Um, but there might, and, and in that case, you're, they're really looking for usually specific holes to fill. You know, maybe they didn't get another, enough students from a certain state, or they needed more female engineers, or they needed another um, two kids for, um, you know, uh, a program in liberal arts. Whatever it is, they're generally looking for holes to fill. Um, so at the schools where there's a ton of movement, bigger schools with, with wait lists that they expect to go to, the likelihood is high that you'd already hear from them by now. If she's waiting on a very selective school, um, she probably will hear something by maybe the end of this month, but it could drag on into June. Some of those schools will send out a notice to all the students on the wait list once they've determined that the wait list is closed and it, they're not going to be taking anybody or anyone else off of the wait list. Um, and usually that notification will come sometime in June at the latest. Um, there is a chance that there could be movement as late as August. It's not common, but it can, can happen. So one thing that I always recommend is that if you really truly are still going to consider attending that school uh, and is that as a family, you, you make that call. What is the latest date by which we're going to say, okay, it's done and I'm attending this school? Um, I did have a mother once notify me when I was at Penn that if they, even if they were driving to that other college, waiting to move him <laughs> into his dorm, they would still accept an offer off of the wait list. Um, it didn't happen, but I thought that was an interesting way to think about it. That, that family had talked about it, and that's the decision they had come to. And so as a family, you know, I'm not sure I would advise that. I think that's silly, truthfully. Um, but if, if that's something you'd be willing to do, I think you want to talk about it. And I think you probably also want to come to a decision about when do I want to stop, when do I want to let go of this other dream, kind of a dream, basically, and really commit to the place I'm going to and get excited about that place. Um, and, you know, my advice would be that sometime probably by the end of June would be when I would, in my own house, um, if I find my son's in that situation, that's probably what I'm going to say to him. So, um, 
that's that's what I can tell you. Uh, I wish it could be more specific, but it really depends on many, many different factors. And is there still anything that Greta's daughter could do at this point to help herself get off the wait list, or is it really out of her hands at this point? If she has done some of the things we've recommended in, in shows um, in previous weeks, and if mm-hmm. you haven't, if Greta hasn't been listening, then they're in the archives, you know, sending a letter to underscore your continued interest, um, updating the school on anything new that's happened, that, that is important since you last, um, since you submitted your application, right? The fact that the guy you really like asked you to prom, not particularly relevant. The fact that you, <laughs> you know, finished the year as strong as you started it or won an award at a senior uh, assembly or, you know, something like that, that might be some relevant information to share. But beyond that, really, it's just more of a waiting game than anything. Right, gotcha. And if it gives Greta any comfort at all, you know, I know we work with students all the time, and many of them end up at that second choice school. They never make it off the wait list, and, you know, nine times out of ten, they fall in love with that second choice school, you know, within a week of arriving, certainly within a mm-hmm. semester of arriving, they can't imagine going anyplace else. So if she ends up at that second choice, it won't feel like second choice for very long. Uh, yeah, I would totally, totally agree and, and uh, echo that, so... Very good point. All right. I have a question for you from Sarah, who says, we weren't able to decide on a college for my daughter by the May 1st deposit deadline. Oh, I know it's coming here. So we put deposits down at two schools. Sarah, no, not not a good idea. Um, Once we decide on one, can we get our money back from the other school? Shannon? (laughs) <laughs> and I know you just want to jump in here to yourself and kill you. I do, Short answer, but I'm not going no, to. No, as, as you might have picked up in the tone of Beth's voice, it's one of the most annoying things to schools. <laughs> it drives them crazy when you deposit it two places. So, And that's the, the incentive not to do that is the fact that you lose your deposit. If you change your mind, you cannot get that deposit back that you've already put down. Um, that's the case almost all the time. Now, I suppose there may be some cases where there are very special circumstances where you could petition the school to get your money back. You know, like I can imagine if some medical issue came up and you now realize the student won't be able to attend. In that kind of situation, I would contact the school and appeal to them to get your money back. But in all normal circumstances, the circumstance where you just changed your mind, you decided not to attend, absolutely not. Sorry, that money is gone. Right. And you certainly would never want to disclose to the school that you double deposited because there have been situations where a school might actually yank their offer um, and uh, you could find yourself in in trouble. You know, if the other school found out that you double deposited as well, both of them could yank their offer. So you don't want to do that. You know, the only thing I want to say to echo this is that I, I, you know, I think a lot of families feel like, well, we need more time and I don't understand what the big deal is. We're giving them our money. And aside from Sarah asking this question, for some families, they're fine with that. Um, And I I think there are a few reasons not to. One is that the colleges specifically ask you not to. And while I know it can be really tempting, and I did see a comment from one of our very long time, very loyal, very vocal listeners who is a big fan of the show. Um, and, and And I do appreciate the sentiment, which is just, hey, you know, it feels like colleges have all the power and, you know, this is a time where we finally have some power and if we want to double deposit, we're going to double deposit. 
you know, I sort of get that. I guess what I would say is the colleges actually don't have all the power. You decide where you're going to apply. And if you're doing a good job of deciding, you know, if you like all of the schools that are on your list and and you continue to be thoughtful about what your options are and, you know, when you find out where you've been accepted, you do your very best within those four weeks to really, you know, be thoughtful about making the decision, you should be prepared to say yes or no to the school. Now, if you're still trying to figure out what the financial details are, if there are pieces that the colleges haven't provided, you know, that's a little bit different. But just not being able to make a decision, uh, you know, this is life. You got to make decisions. There, you, you can't go to both, right? So at a certain point, what are you buying with your $600 there? An extra week? An extra month? Um, and it is causing problems. If not, you know, if not for the college's sake, maybe think about the other kids. Because if you turn down that one school... Maybe they're going and they're getting Greta's kid off the wait list because it's her top choice. <laughs> right. You know, so you're making another family who might be a listener of Voice America, to Voice America's show or are getting in show here on Voice America. You're making another family um, happy by doing that. And you're opening up an opportunity for them. So even if from your perspective, you feel like it's almost a way to, to grab back a little bit of that power from the colleges... I would really entreat you to think about the um, other students that are out there in limbo yeah. right now as a result. So, Yeah, that's, that's anyway. a really great point. You, you know, you think you're kind of you're sticking it to the college perhaps. Right. In fact, what, you, what you're doing is sticking it to the other students who are sitting there waiting on a wait list, agonizing over not knowing where they're going to be in the fall. So, yeah, right. then perhaps that, that ship has sailed uh, for Sarah, but for folks listening, thinking about doing this in the future. Please don't. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. All right, so one more question for you. Um, Mike asks, we have to decide if my daughter should do dual enrollment with our local community college or stick with high school courses. Our school offers APs. Uh, which do colleges like Dartmouth or Tufts, where I used to work, prefer? Uh, so this is a good question. I'm actually really happy that Mike included these specific colleges because – you know, if the question was more general, which do colleges prefer, then, of course, it's a broader response because, as we know from previous questions, there is rarely a time where I can say, this is always going to be the choice you need to make, right? Right. Um, so what I would say is that dual enrollment can be interesting opportunities for students to earn college credit while they're in high school. Um, and depending on where they want to go to college, that can be a way to actually enter college with a bunch of credits already taken care of. And maybe that means you're only in college for a couple of years or you cut a year, maybe even two off of, um, off of what you're doing. Uh, or how much you have to pay, right? But okay. when you start looking at the most selective levels, they're really, first of all, they're generally not going to be accepting those as credits that you can apply towards your degree at places like Dartmouth and Tufts. At Penn, our rule of thumb was if you were going to get credit for the college course, it had to be taken at a college 
in uh, with other college students, and it could not have been already counted for high school credit, so it couldn't be double counted. Um, and in general, what we found was that often the high school courses were more challenging than those dual enrollment courses. They certainly could be more challenging than those. And so there was sometimes the feeling that by going off campus to do some dual enrollment classes or just opting to do community college classes in place of, let's say, an AP class at the school, the student was taking the easier path. And, you know, the easier path is not what Dartmouth and Tufts and schools like them want to see. They want to see students really challenging themselves. So my advice um, would be that I would stick with the high school courses. uh, And if the goal are those highly selective schools, um, that that would be the better choice over the dual enrollment. All right, we are right up against time for break. So, um, Shannon, we'll have a question for you when we come back. And listeners, stay put because we will be back in just a minute. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, We have been answering your questions. And by the way, if you have questions for us, um, you can send them to us anytime. It's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. So send those questions in to us. We always hope to be answering um, the questions that you want answered. All right. 
Shannon, I have a question for you, and it comes to us from Yvette, who says, we just decided on a college for my daughter and put our first deposit down. Uh, when do I have to pay the rest? Good question. Okay, excellent question. Yeah, I know people are are anxiously anticipating that, that first bill. So at most colleges, they're, they're set up on a semester system, so you get billed by semester. Um, so that first fall semester bill, every college is a little bit different, but um, the most common sort of process is you will get that uh, first fall semester bill in probably like the first week in July, and it will be due the first week in August. So that's, you've got a couple months now to, to start planning for that, that first bill. Um, if, if you're planning on borrowing a loan to cover that money, just make sure you, you allow, um, allow yourself some time. Some of the loans can take, you know, I would say probably at most like a few weeks to be processed from the, the time you start a loan application. Um, so just make sure, you know, by, when you get that bill in July, you start on the loan process immediately so that the, um, the funding is in place by uh, that first week in August when the bill will likely be due. Um, the other thing to note is most colleges nowadays do offer a monthly payment plan option. Um, so the sort of default option is that you pay on a semester basis. Um, but, but many, many colleges also offer this monthly payment plan option. Um, but you do have to kind of actively seek it out. It's not the default option. Um, so I would check in wherever your, your child has decided on, check in with their bursar's office or student accounts office, find out about the payment plan if that may be something that's of interest to you. It's a good way to kind of, for most of us that don't have a huge chunk of change sitting in the bank ready to go to pay that fall semester bill, spreading it out on a monthly basis can make it a lot more feasible. So that's definitely something to look into. Now, a lot of the monthly payment plans actually kick in starting in May, like right now, this month, you can start paying on that monthly payment plan. Um, and if you don't sign up kind of early enough now, what you often will have to do is make, if you don't sign up till like August, you have to make a few months worth of catch-up payments. Um, and it makes the, the monthly payment plan, you know, less worthwhile because you're still having to come up with a big chunk of change at once. So again, kind of, you will probably have to pay that first semester bill by the first week in August. But if the monthly payment plan is of interest, I would look into that now. All right. Sounds good. Okay. And the next admissions question is from um, Sanu. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. My son has the opportunity to do an internship with a local real estate developer um, or do our state's governor's school this summer. Only a handful of students from his school qualified for a governor's school, and we know that it's a real honor to be accepted and to attend. He can't do both because the dates conflict, so which option is better, the internship with the real estate developer or the prestigious governor's school? Sure. Really good question. Um, and, you know, part of my answer here is I, I always have the more selective level schools in my head. Um, you didn't say what he got accepted to for governor's school or what he's interested in studying, um, which also kind of would help a little bit. But if we assume that the internship with the local real estate developer, if he went out and found that internship himself, if that's his area of interest, if he's interested in real estate and in development and in construction and that kind of, of field, 
Um, and if he knows that the internship is going to involve significant experience, so if he's going to be doing something other than sitting back in the office and filing papers, and he's really going to have an opportunity to sit in on meetings, to maybe even um, sort of get involved in a specific project that the developer is doing, if any of those pieces are part of the plan, Um, I would say that that to me sounds more interesting. And the reason it sounds more interesting is because you yourself said that uh, only a handful of students from his school qualified for governor's school. But I would guess that there's no other student at his school that's going to do an internship with this local real estate developer. Um, So it's more unique. Um, You can always put on the on the application that he was accepted to governor's school. He doesn't have to go or attend in order to have that be recognized as an honor that he achieved because that's very exciting. And, and, and it isn't a a small thing to get accepted to governor's school. Um, But if the governor's school is just more of a, Hey, look at this honor. And we know it's a big deal then I, wow, it's in the area that he's most interested in, then I would say that really your better option here might be that internship with the real estate developer, assuming that those other pieces are are in place, as I mentioned. All right. That is a great tip. That's something I didn't know that he can put on the application that he was accepted, even if he does not attend. That is a fabulous tip. He can get the best of both worlds. Exactly, exactly. Um, You know, there's a lot of reasons why you might not be able to do something like that, um, but that doesn't, shouldn't diminish the fact that you got accepted. And so I always have students put that in the honors and awards section, or if it doesn't fit there, then in the additional information section, that's something you can always note. Um, And I didn't, and I wouldn't say you have to note with a long explanation of why you didn't attend. It could just be something that, you know, right. unfortunately you had other, another commitment and you couldn't attend, but you were accepted. Um, all right. Joe is asking, where can I find some scholarships to pay my fall tuition bill? Uh, <laughs> so, like some of the other questions, I wish Joe had asked this a little bit earlier. Um, you know, we, if you dig back in the archive, I, archives, I, I think we've done lots of, of segments on finding scholarships. Um, the, the catch to, to Joe's question here, scholarships to pay that fall tuition bill, they're going to be few and far between at this point. I think he has, has missed the deadline for probably most scholarships for fall. Um, they can kind of come up really at any point in the year, but uh, I think very often they come up kind of in January, February kind of time frame. Um, so the ship may have sailed for fall. Certainly do some searches. Um, you can look online. Scholarships.com is, is one good website. Um, and any scholarships that you find that, um, that you have missed the deadline on, um, keep note of them for next year. It's something that continuing um, college students, returning college students, don't think about applying for scholarships a lot. Um, you know, most Students think about it, you know, during their senior year of high school or maybe right after, uh, you know, during that summer before they start college and they're trying to figure out how to pay the bill. That's when a lot of people start um, thinking about it. But keep Mm -hmm. searching really throughout college. Do some online searches. um, Check in with the financial aid office at the school about any um, scholarships they're aware of that you can pursue. Um, Once you've declared a major 
um, at college. Check in with your major department. Sometimes individual departments control some money um, that they actually specifically reserve for continuing students. You know, they want to wait and see that you've kind of proven yourself as a student at their institution before they award um, you a little bit of scholarship money. Um, once he's kind of on... Um, again, kind of declared a major on maybe kind of a career path. Check in with the web on the website of the any professional associations um, affiliated with that kind of career path. Sometimes they offer uh, scholarships. Again, kind of specifically reserved for con- continuing students who have already kind of started along that path. Um, so those are some potential resources. Again, probably not going to find much for fall at this point. There, there are probably still a few kind of scraggler, uh, straggler scholarships out there that, that might still be applicable for, for fall. But otherwise, take note of them to apply for next year and keep looking for scholarships throughout your college career. Got it. All right. Alrighty, and the next question for you is from Lindsay. I want to drop foreign language in my senior year. I've heard the teacher for AP Spanish is not great, uh, and even though I do well in this subject, I'm not sure I'm really prepared for the AP level. Do you think this will hurt me in terms of getting into college? Well, good question. There's a few different things going on here, right? The whole, I've heard the teacher isn't great. And sometimes that does play out. I, I, you know, my question always is, well, define what not great means, right? Is this a teacher who's notoriously difficult? Is this a teacher who's a little out to lunch and isn't really focused on the class? What does that mean? Um, and, and I do think it's important to dig a little bit more deeply when it comes to that. Lindsay's not here. We can't really ask her. Um, but something to consider. I also think, you know, something to consider about, are you prepared? You know, I I don't know if you've been doing honors Spanish and this is the, you know, next step or if you've been doing regular level Spanish and the only option at this point is the AP level and you're worried that that's a bridge that's a little bit too... um, too big for you to kind of um, make between just regular level and AP level. Um, And and my advice is always, hey, I'm not going to be the one who takes the class. So if you have taken an honest look and and decided that this is really just not going to be a success for you, then I, you know, I would say, okay, um, if you are going to drop the Spanish, I would double up in another core subject area. And so take two maths or two um, histories or two English classes or two science classes, whatever you do, you want to make sure you have five core classes, regardless of where you're applying to college. If you are looking at the most selective schools, I do actually think it's going to be not ideal for you to not do a foreign language in your senior year. Um, Even if you double up in another area, the fact is you're going to be against students who are going to have foreign language in their senior year, who have going to, to gone to the highest level available in all five major subject areas, which usually at many schools is the AP level. And so to stop before you get there, even though you qualified for it, isn't going to look great. Do you, is it, does it mean you're not going to get in just because of that one choice? No, of course not. But it, you know, it's never about one class. But it is about a series of decisions that you make along the way that are going to either positively or negatively impact your choices. And um, the decision not to do AP Spanish at the more selective levels could have a little bit of a negative impact. But if you're not looking at that level of school and you can add, you can double up in another area, I'm not sure it's going to hurt you all that much. So, um, and, and maybe not at all, quite, on, quite honestly. So, um, uh, there you have it. I don't know all of the specifics, but that's my advice. 
All right. Um, We are, I think we have time for another question and possibly two. Let's see here. The next question comes from Kirk who says, "Um, we're going to have a substantial college bill coming up for my son in the next few months. And I'm concerned about some bad credit in my past preventing me from getting a loan to help pay it. What can I do? Okay, Kirk, I'll try and be quick about this, though it it is a little bit complicated. So first of all, if you haven't done the FAFSA yet, do that. Like I I said in another question, your son can get $5,500 on his own that your credit is not going to affect at all. Now, if you need more than $5,500, there's something called a Parent Plus Loan, which does require a credit check, but it's actually probably the easiest credit check to pass out there as opposed to some loans in the private market. Um, They look back at the past five years at your credit history. Um, So if your bad credit is um, further back than that, it shouldn't pose any problems. You could get a plus loan. Um, If it's closer than that, you are denied a plus loan. You do have a few options. You can appeal the credit decision if the situation has now been resolved. Um, You can reapply with a co-signer, or they call it an endorser with the plus loan. Or if a parent is denied a plus loan, the student can actually borrow a little bit more unsubsidized Stafford loan in his name. Um, It's $4,000 for freshman year, so that may be enough to get you through. I would talk to the school's financial aid office. Um, The other option that might work for you if you can't get a loan, that monthly payment plan that I mentioned, that might make... um, you know, paying the school feasible on a monthly basis, even if you don't have the money sitting in a savings account, maybe you can do the monthly payment plan, which does not require a credit check. Um, so that's definitely something I would look into as well. And do we have time for one more question for you, Beth? We actually do have time for one more All question right. for me, and then we'll go to the close. All right, perfect. So Deepa asks, um, what do IVs want to see for summer activities? Ha. Huh. Uh, the elusive IVs and what they are looking for, and is there a right thing to do? I put that in parentheses, or not in parentheses, in quotation marks. So if you've been listening to the show for a while now, you'll know that there is no sort of one thing that anyone can do. Um, And uh, the answer there is, truthfully, you know, something ideally selective, interesting, um, that uh, maybe that only you are doing, like our friend who's maybe going to do that real estate developer internship. But really, um, my advice would be, I actually um, have been writing a Huffington Post series about um, evaluating chances for the IVs, and one of the things that we do deal with is this question of summer activities. So if you Google my name, Elizabeth Heaton, and Huffington Post, you should come up with this series, and I wrote a whole blog about um, how to take a look at what you've been doing over the summer. So I would check that out. Very quickly, um, I did want to let you know that next week, Ian is here. He's going to be ta- giving an inside perspective on admissions at Holy Cross and Babson. He's going to be doing office hours, and we're also going to be talking about spending your college savings wisely. Um, And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. and 1 p.m. Pacific, so join us next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.